Welcome back to A History of Jazz, a podcast dedicated to exploring jazz history one record at a time. I'm your host, Eric Devins. Now, it's been quite a while since I've, uh, I've made a new episode, uh, longer even than I initially anticipated when I announced that I would be having to take a sabbatical from the show, oh God, three months ago or something. Now, Partially that's because of travel and life and things and things. And also, uh, for those of you who follow the show on Twitter, at Jazz History Pod, you know that um, I recorded this episode once before, but unfortunately, due to unexpected technical problems, um, that recording was lost. So I'm doing it again now. So second time's the charm I've always heard. Uh, And uh, and so um, I'm very excited to be back. Uh, telling this story again. Um, I wish I could promise that there would be specific update schedules or any kind of consistency with that. I certainly would appreciate that. I'm sure you would all too as well. Uh, I, I just can't. Um, this show requires a lot of work to to get it to a level that I'm happy with. And um, finding the time to do that is just, you know, it's difficult. It's not my full-time job. So um, I will continue to try to... Um, hone my craft and, uh, and and eliminate other distractions from my life to make more time for this, but uh, I just hope you all will bear with me. Um, it's going to be a fun ride, but it's going to take as long as it takes, and, um, and, and I just really appreciate everyone, all the feedback, uh, all, the, all the excited people. It means a lot to me. I, I'm so, so gratified. Thank you. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's get started. So, one of the reasons that I originally created this show was that I was really intrigued by the space that a podcast has to offer. And by space, I mean time. I have more time to work with than if this was a documentary or a book where there's some kind of reasonable limit on how long the thing can be. This show can go on as long as I'm interested in doing it and you're interested in listening to it. And uh, because of that, I get to talk about a lot of artists who are not normally discussed in jazz history overviews, books about jazz history, even sometimes very detailed books, don't have the space to talk about some of these people, some of these stories. And in the early period where we're at now, that includes a lot of what you might call pre-jazz musicians. Those are musicians who helped to move the music into the jazz age that we'll be getting to in the early 20s, but who themselves, you would say, recorded more jazz-influenced music rather than perhaps full-on what we would consider jazz. So today, we get to talk about one of those people. He was incredibly famous in his own time, and he did quite a few important things, but today he's been almost totally forgotten. And because of this, this is the one unfortunate bit, because of this, most of the music that I'm going to play today is very hard to find. It's just on old records, it's never been... CD or digital or anything. So only one song I play on this episode will actually be in the Spotify playlist, and that song is a cover of a song of his from decades later. But I think it's worth it, and uh, and hopefully you'll enjoy the music on the show. So the artist I'm talking about, his name was Ford Dabney. Now, Ford Dabney was one of the most successful band leaders of the 19-teens. And he was a close friend of last episode's subject, James Reese Europe. And he also composed and conducted music for Vernon and Irene Castle, the dance leaders that famously made James Reese Europe a star. His orchestra was featured for eight years as part of the Ziegfeld Follies after theater show called Midnight Frolic. 
He recorded more songs by 1920 than any African-American artist other than the Broadway icon, Burt Williams. So this is a guy I think is worth talking about. Now, Ford Thompson Dabney was born on March 15, 1883 in Washington, D.C., and both his father and uncle were professional musicians. Dabney attended a training school, but he always preferred music, and he was taught by both his father and private teachers, and his principal instrument, at least early on, was the piano. And so he's born in 1883. By 1903, at 20, Dabney had become the musical director for a show in Hartford, Connecticut, called The Tsar of Dixie. And by 1904, he agreed to become the official court musician for Nord Alexis, who was the president of Haiti, and he moved and lived there for three years. Now, Alexis, who came to power in 1902, ruled mostly through assassinations and terrorism, and there was all kinds of turmoil in Haiti while Dabney lived there, and eventually President Alexis was overthrown and run out of the country, but luckily for him, Dabney had left the year before and returned to the USA. He spent the next few years switching between Washington, D.C. and New York City, and it's there that he first met James Reese Europe. And for a while, he was managing a touring vaudeville act, which was called Ford Dabney's Ginger Girls, with singer actresses Effie King and Lottie G. But more and more, he was composing music. And many of his earliest compositions were, as was the style of the time, rags. And we're going to hear one of those now. This is from 1909, and it's called Oh, You Devil. Dabney was also involved in New York musical theater. He composed the music for a show called The King's Quest in 1909, which as a childhood fan of Sierra Online makes me very, very happy. And in 1910, he had his first song in the Ziegfeld Follies. It was also in 1910 that he published the song that would most come to define his career. Originally, it was called That's Why They Call Me Shine, and it was inspired by a real person who was either named Shine or Kid Shine, a street tough who was also a friend of George Walker, another famous musician, and was caught with Walker in the New York City race riot of August 1900. And James Weldon Johnson, the noted author and civil rights activist, included a character named Shine, probably based on the same person, in his 1912 semi-fictional book, Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man. Now, in D.C., Dabney op- operated two theaters, the Ford Dabney Theater and the Chelsea, and both featured live acts and movies. He also attempted to organize a new vaudeville booking circuit, but ultimately that failed. At the same time in New York City, he became one of the founding members of the Clef Club, which we discussed at length in several previous episodes, thanks to his continuing friendship with James Reese Europe. Now, by 1913, he was the co-leader and principal pianist for Europe's Society Orchestra. I was playing around New York for Vernon and Irene Castle. 
in December of 1913, when Europe left the Clef Club and formed the Tempo Club, Dabney went with him and ended up the vice president of this new organization. And it was that same month that he recorded for the first time as one of two pianists in Europe's orchestra at that historic first Victor session we talked about last episode. And Dabney was co-writing so many dance tunes with Europe at this point that their publisher started spelling their names backwards as music by Eperuan Yenbad, just to lend a bit of variety to the wordings on the records. All right, let's listen to one of his 1919 songs now. This one's called Lassus Trombone. Dabney and Europe would also spend weekends entertaining guests at the castle's Manhasset estate. Irene Castle described these events with, We always had several weekend guests staying with us, and no matter how full a program we had planned for Sunday, all bets were off when Europe and Dabney hove in sight and we would huddle around the piano, enchanted by some new dance number they were in the act of composing for us. In April of 1914, the Tempo Club played a show called A Night in Tango Land at Manhattan Casino, and more than 2,500 people came to see the castle's dance to Europe and Dabney's music. And Dabney wasn't just making music with Europe, he was also composing his own music. And in June, Broadway mogul Florence Ziegfeld launched an after-theater dance club called the Dance de Follies, which came after the main Ziegfeld Follies and was intended to make use of the cool summer nights. This was in the era before air conditioning. And it was so successful that by 1915, he had opened Ziegfeld's Midnight Frolic. And the Frolic became a huge night spot hit. Will Rogers, Eddie Cantor, Burt Williams, W.C. Fields all performed there. The sets were designed by a Viennese designer, and there was a plate glass walkway for showgirls to parade on, their dresses being blown around by small fans. All of the guests were given little wooden hammers to rap on the tables when they wanted an encore, which sounds awesome to me. Ziegfeld initially hired two bands, one European-American and one African-American from the Tempo Club, initially billed as James Reese Europe Society Orchestra, but fairly quickly the name was changed to Fort Dabney and his orchestra. A variety said of the band, Dabney's colored orchestra did all the playing, doing it so well that at times the music made them stand up and sway to it while fiddling or blowing. Let's hear another 1919 song now. This is Squealing Pig Blues.
The band was so successful that they were kept permanently, and there's a long article from this period from the New York Age which described the atmosphere and the historical achievements as, Dabney's orchestra is making history. One of the novel places of amusement on the Gay White Way is Ziegfeld's Midnight Frolic, atop the new Amsterdam Theater, and one of the features of this unusual pleasure resort is Dabney's syncopated orchestra. This musical organization enjoys the distinction of being the first colored orchestra to play regularly in a Broadway theater, and it performs a double duty, furnishes all the music for the soloist, choruses, etc. to sing by, and serves enlivening strains for patrons who desire to indulge in a one-step, foxtrot, or a waltz. Three years ago, when the dance craze was at its height, F. Ziegfeld Jr., who's constantly doing extraordinary things on a large scale in the amusement world, conducted a dancing palace atop the New Amsterdam Theater, employing two bands, one colored, the other white. He conceived of the idea of giving New Yorkers something in the entertainment line, so he produced Ziegfeld's Midnight Frolic, consisting of a two-hour show and a dancing program which enables devotees of the Terpsichorean art to spend two hours and a half enjoying their favorite form of amusement. Upon making this radical change, Mr. Ziegfeld did the unexpected by discharging the white orchestra and keeping the colored musicians. No one had any idea that a colored orchestra would be installed to accompany the white singers. At the time, colored musicians were in great demands as dispensers of dance music, but no one had ever displayed the temerity to put them in a Broadway theater as the regular house orchestra. But F. Ziegfeld Jr. is one of the greatest showmen of his time, and has become so because of his daring and originality. The experiment of installing a colored orchestra in the Midnight Frolic was a big success from the start. Dabney's syncopated orchestra has been atop the New Amsterdam Theater for three years, and along Broadway, the colored musicians are accredited with being accomplished and versatile musicians. Sickfield's Midnight Frolic is astir when many farmers are about to get up to commence their day's work. It is a haven for amusement lovers who do not care to go home until morning. It's not until 10.30 in the evening, less than half an hour before some theaters close, that the Ziegfeld Institution takes on an air of life and activity. Then the patrons dance until midnight. From 12 until 2 o'clock, a vaudeville performance with chorus girls and goodly numbers interspersed on the program at frequent intervals is given. From 2 until 3 o'clock, dancing is in order. 20 musical numbers are played nightly by Dabney's syncopated orchestra for the show alone. Those familiar with the record made by the colored musicians atop the New Amsterdam Theater do not wonder why Mr. Ziegfeld has kept them for three years, which is a long life in the theatrical world. The answer is, they make good with a big G. Well, let's hear another 1919 song now. This one's called The Dancing Deacon. In 1917, Ford Dabney was one of the best-known band leaders in New York. As jazz began to take over, starting with the original Dixieland jazz band at Weber's, record companies were frantically looking around for performers who could play something that they could market as jazz. And Dabney wasn't a jazz musician, but as a syncopated band leader, he was as close as the recording companies were quickly able to find. 
and he was approached by Aeolian Vocalion, a company who made phonograms and musical instruments, who wanted to launch a new record label in early 1918. As we discussed in previous episodes, Aeolian Vocalion even eventually recorded the original Dixieland Jazz Band while they were engaged in their legal disputes with Victor. Dabney was signed and recorded at almost the same time as the ODJB was recording. It was close enough in time, in fact, that they might even have passed each other in the corridors, although we don't have any definite evidence of this. Now, whether the music that we're hearing in this episode is jazz or not has been debated forever. And as with so much of the early music I'm playing on this show, the distinction isn't an easy one to define. The music is certainly syncopated, it's loose, it's clearly jazz-influenced. But for me, jazz is defined by the history of the people who played it, or claim they played it, and in that sense, Dabney qualifies for me. An example of him claiming to play it is this song from 1919 called The Jazz, Lazy Blues. Several of the musicians that Dabney used for these recordings went on to have pioneering jazz careers of their own, especially his cornetist, the awesomely named Cricket Smith. Now, one of the earliest recordings, in fact, that Vocalion did with Dabney was as the backing band for an Arthur Fields version of a song that we are now very familiar with, Dark Town Strutter's Ball. Fields was a European-American singer, and while this isn't the first example of an interracial recording, it was pretty progressive for the time. The other interesting thing about Dabney's recordings is that they were longer than other companies could handle. Vocalion was experimenting with a close groove technique that allowed for nearly five minutes of music on a 10-inch disc. And they bragged that, in addition to its superior recording facilities, the Vocalion record is able, through the system of cutting used, to accommodate a selection of music one-third longer than the ordinary disc. This was great for dancers, but given that in this era there's almost no improvisation in the music, it's a bit repetitive if you actually sit down to try to listen to it. The new label was announced in May of 1918, and of Dabney, the catalog said, Dabney's band with Sigfield's Midnight Frolic attained its initial popularity with the exclusive dancing set of New York by supplying the inspiring music originally used by the famous Castles. For the past three years, however, its fascinating syncopations have contributed largely to the success of the Midnight Frolic. Several snappy, up-to-the-minute foxtrots and one-steps are presented in the first recording bulletin, which demonstrate the impossibility of sitting out dances when Dabney's band plays. That sounds great, but the records did not sell very well. The label had limited distribution channels, their records were high-priced, and similar to Pathé, they were vertically recorded, which meant most people couldn't actually play them. But by 1919, Dabney was in his sixth season at Midnight Frolic and at the height of his recording career. He was experimenting with new instrumentation, including a new affinity for the saxophone. And many of these new sound songs were recorded under the name Dabney's Novelty Orchestra, with no mention of Midnight Frolic. 
Now, he recorded dozens of songs in 1919, many of them popular hits or patriotic post-war songs. We've heard quite a few of them this episode. He was also being used as an accompaniment for vocalists. Now, let's hear another song now from 1919. This one's called Round the Corner. was the height of his career, and he never achieved that much success again. Uh, Aeolian Vicalion finally converted to lateral recordings in 1920 and used the technique for Daphne's final three releases. But by 1923, all of his records had been removed from Vocalion's catalog, and his time with the label was over. Also, in 1920, Ziegfeld fired Daphne's band. Uh, he was falling behind modern trends, and although he did make a minor comeback in late 1921 with The Midnight Frolic again, they closed permanently in 1922. Even though Dabney was only in his 30s, the musical world had passed him by. James Reese Europe was killed in May 1919, and at his funeral, Dabney led his band through the streets of Harlem. He continued to lead orchestras in New York and D.C. during the early 20s. Some of these D.C. concerts were even an influence on a young Duke Ellington, who later said that both Europe and Dabney were great talents that he had followed early in his career, and he made his last recordings in 1922 for Paramount. Dabney spent the rest of the 20s running an entertainment bureau. He played in Palm Beach, Miami, and Newport, several seasons in Atlantic City. He scored his greatest hits as a composer with the revised lyrics for that 1910 song I mentioned early on, That's Why They Call Me Shine. It was retitled simply Shine and was one of the top sellers of 1924. But by the 1930s, he was mostly living off past royalties, especially from Shine. It became one of the standards of the jazz and swing repertoires of the 20s and 30s, with recordings by pretty much everyone, including... Bing Crosby, Ella Fitzgerald, Django Reinhardt, Benny Goodman, Jack Teagarden, and Louis Armstrong. Benny Goodman even featured the song in his famous 1938 Carnegie Hall concert, which we will talk much more about in a future episode. Shine was even in the movies, as early as 1928, when it was sung in a Vitaphone film, Short, by an African-American quartet called the Pullman Porters, and Louis Armstrong used it in his 1932 short, Rhapsody in Black and Blue, and it was in several other later feature-length films. It was a major radio hit in the 30s, with 3,000 plays in 1935 and nearly 6,000 in 1937, and apparently those are big numbers. In 1948, it received a new fame, when a Mercury recording by a singer named Frankie Lane became a top 10 hit, and since then it's been recorded by pretty much every jazz artist. It is firmly entrenched as both a jazz and pop standard. So we'll hear that 1948 recording now. This is Frankie Lane with Shine. Ooh, baby, bye bye. Bubble 
Dabney passed away on June 21, 1958, at the age of 75. He was still living in the same Harlem neighborhood he had been since the early 19-teens. He left a widow and a son behind, and obituaries of the time mostly remembered him for Shine and his association with the castles in Sigfield. In his 1936 book, The Negro and His Music, Alan Locke listed Dabney along with James Reese Europe, Will Marion Cook, and W.C. Handy as one of four musicians who organized Negro music out of a broken, musically illiterate dialect and made it a national and intellectual music. Dabney was especially recognized for revolutionizing the Negro dance orchestra. And that's where we're going to leave it today. Thank you very much for listening. I'm going to play one more song from 1919. This one's called Doodah Blues. <laughs> show on Twitter at Jazz History Pod, or check out the website at ahistoryofjazz.com. Every episode, I'll be including a link to a Spotify playlist of all the songs we heard. You can subscribe in iTunes or Overcast or wherever great podcasts can be found. If you want to participate, please leave a rating or a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Tiger, and I hope you enjoyed the show. (laughs) ¶¶